My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Candace Paul. Industrial activity that requires the mining and use of significant amounts of radioactive material has been around since at least the middle of the 20th century. Such activity inevitably results in waste that is no longer useful but that continues to be radioactive and therefore dangerous. Despite the many decades we have traveled into the nuclear era, there remains no solution that has been rigorously proven to be safe and that is broadly accepted for dealing with waste that, in the case of uranium, will continue to emit radiation for billions of years. Uranium mining arrived in northern Saskatchewan in the 1970s, along with a complicated mix of embrace and resistance from local communities, which are mostly Cree, Dene, and Métis, with a handful of settler folk mixed in. Then, in 2011, it emerged that the leadership of three communities had signed up to be considered as the potential location for a radioactive waste storage facility. The Committee for Future Generations was soon born as a collective vehicle for residents to oppose any such facility. They did extensive research and public education. They participated in public hearings, meetings, and regulatory processes. They did a protest walk to Regina. And, ultimately, they succeeded in ensuring that none of the three communities in the territory were chosen for the waste facility. But uranium mining continues, and the territory is blanketed with claims where companies will be doing exploration that could well end up in one, two, or many new mines. Paul talks with me about the Committee for Future Generations organizing so far, about their significant concerns about the health, social, and environmental impacts of the uranium industry, which she encapsulates as nuclear colonization, and about their next steps in working towards a safe, healthy, decolonized future for northern Saskatchewan. We spoke by Skype. Good day, I'm Candace Paul from English River First Nation in northern Saskatchewan, and I am the Outreach Coordinator for the Committee for Future Generations. We're a group of volunteers who have taken on the task of educating our people in our province and nationally, internationally as well, on the state of the uranium and nuclear industry in Saskatchewan. We're in northwestern Saskatchewan. The mines are about 300 kilometers northeast of us as the crow flies. All of the communities in the northwest have people that are flown into the mines to work. The nuclear waste situation would have been within that same distance of us, but it would have been passing through our particular community for sure. There's about 37,000 people in the region, and we're mostly Cree, Dene, Métis, with a few settler people. 
I really didn't get involved. I knew about the uranium industry. I knew about nuclear bombs because growing up as a child, we were told that if an alarm went off, and there were alarm drills in the communities, even in rural communities back then during the Cold War, that we were supposed to go under our desks at school. That was it. And I thought that was kind of really dumb. Even as a kid, I thought that was kind of a dumb plan. But my husband, growing up in the north here, where the uranium mines started to make an impact and started impacting the people, has been involved for quite some time. He was involved in some camps and roadblocks in the late 70s and early 80s to try and stop the yellow cake trucks and inform the drivers of the dangers and the risks. He also was part of a group of people at that time that were trying to make awareness across all of North America on that. And then for many years, we spent a lot of years living in the bush, building our own home, and we were kind of out of touch with things. But back in 2011, there was an announcement. We were working in a school at the time. There was an announcement in a publication that comes to schools for children on current events that English River First Nation, that's our band, the neighboring town of Pine House, Métis community, and the town of Creighton in northeastern Saskatchewan had all decided to sign up to learn about storing nuclear waste. And in the same article, there was a, another story about Fukushima triple meltdowns. Uh, and just in case listeners aren't aware, Fukushima is the location of a major nuclear power plant meltdown that occurred in Japan in 2011. My students wanted to learn about this, so I had them do research. And when they started doing research, they got so involved that they didn't even take breaks. They didn't take a break in the morning, noon, or in the afternoon. And after that, we had a discussion period. And what they said to me was, what's the matter with the adults? Don't they know this is crazy? You can't spend money if you're dead. And they said, how far away do we have to move to be safe? If something went wrong with this, the answer is there's no place to move. And at that point, I saw it as my duty as an adult to address this for them because they had that expectation that we should. So that's where I became more heavily involved. And since that time, every day, I'm doing something on this issue. So how did the Committee for Future Generations get started? When some of our neighbors in Beauvel had participated in a elders conference in Pine House, there was a discussion that was supposed to be about what to do about youth suicides, because it is a problem in our region. And all of a sudden, about halfway through the conversation, a person stood up and started writing on a flip chart, NWMO. Nobody really knew what that was. So he said, this is Nuclear Waste Management Organization, and this is the answer to our youth suicides. We need all this money from this organization. we got to store nuclear waste so that we can stop youth suicides. We can put in programs for that. Ten of the elders got up and walked out because they knew this was not right. So our neighbor was pretty upset and came home and told his wife, and together they called and informed a whole bunch of people, including us. And within about two weeks, we had arranged a forum where we invited somebody who knew a lot more about the uranium and nuclear business, Dr. Jim Harding, to come up and explain to us exactly what it would be that we're facing. They also invited Nuclear Waste Management Organization to come, and they refused. 
but they did get some materials that are been left in the kiosks in the communities with a PowerPoint display that they had on CD-ROM, and it was presented. There were 200 people that came from 12 different communities across the north, and there was a resolution made that we should oppose and start a petition to ask for a ban on nuclear waste storage in Saskatchewan. So that is the beginnings of our organization. It's made up of Cremetis, Dene, Settler people from English River, Beauval, Pine House, and the network of people all across the province now. We, at that point, started building a petition and getting signatures, and decisions were made to do a walk against nuclear waste from Pine House to the legislature in Regina. That was in the summer of 2011. It took about three weeks to do, and we got a lot of good press at the beginning until we got to Saskatoon. While we were in Saskatoon, Nuclear Waste Management Organization got to the Saskatoon newspaper and wrote an editorial that said that it would be pretty much crazy to not take this deal in an economically deprived region. It was all based on the benefits of economics. That was the push. And there was not a whole lot of information at that time on what the real risks are. So we did months and months and years now of research on what those risks are. When we went to see and participate in meetings and open houses that the Nuclear Waste Management Organization put on, we would ask questions based on trying to see if they're going to tell us everything. And there were so many gaps. And there were times when they didn't have the answers. And it got to the point where the communications officer for their organization didn't know the answer in a meeting. And he turned to me and he says, I bet you know the answer, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. I can't even remember what the question was. You know, it was pretty blatant. There was so much lack of logic. I think the whole process was really premature. They've been working on trying to find a solution for nuclear waste storage or what to do with it for more than 50 years, and they haven't gotten close to coming up with a solution. So the only solution they've got at the moment is to try and store it in a deep geological repository. That means about 500 meters underground. However, their storage system is based on encapsulating the nuclear waste in copper, then steel, then concrete, and then bentonite clay. Right now, they are still in the process of doing the research on how this is going to impact the microbes that live in the bentonite clay. They don't know that. And then we came to the realization in order for bentonite clay to work as a seal, it has to be wet, which means they're going to have to put water over it. And we asked the question at one of their meetings, okay, since it has to be wet and you have to put water over it, which they hadn't told people, is this not going to make that water radioactive? And they had to admit that it would. So aquifers are going to already get impacted. The other thing is they're still working on a way to seal the hole, and that experiment is taking place in Kinawa, Manitoba, and that experiment's going to be running for another 50 years. So at this point, they don't even know if they can seal the hole, and they don't know whether or not it's going to be permanent. But they would already have nuclear waste stored in a repository before the experiment is over. So really, I don't think there's any possible way that they can really confirm that it's going to seal it for 4.7 billion years, which is the amount of time it's going to be before this stuff is safe around humans 
or living things. There are other methods of storage that they could do. One of the things that some people, including myself, agree with is that it should have rolling stewardship. Look after it above ground where you can monitor it into perpetuity if you have to. Or keep on doing the research. Find out other ways that you can deal with it. But one of the biggest problems is they still want to keep producing it. And I think it's really foolish and irresponsible of the nuclear industry to continue to create nuclear waste when they do not have a real solution. In November 2013, it was announced that English River, First Nation, and Pine House did not make the cut. So they were eliminated from the process. When the reporter that called me interviewed them before he called me, he asked them what the reason was. And they said, well, there was no way that they could get the approval of the region because of the misinformation that our group was spreading around the region. We've been very careful about the information we use. We make sure that it's confirmed, that it's peer-reviewed, that there's physicists, engineers, scientists, doctors that back it up. So it wasn't misinformation. It was just that they couldn't counter it. And they also said that the geology just wasn't suitable enough. In February of this year, it was announced that Creighton, the last remaining community in Saskatchewan that had been looking at it, was eliminated due to geology. But there was strong resistance in Creighton. And we were very much a part of that. And there was people that joined our organization, the Committee for Future Generations, from Creighton and Quinzon. Now we are more involved in what to do about the existing uranium mining and the exploration for new uranium deposits. The entire region south of Lake Athabasca is completely covered with mining claims, exploration claims. That is the traditional hunting territory of the Denisovini people. There is so much activity going on in northwestern Saskatchewan, north of Laloche, that people are having a difficult time reaching their hunting and fishing territories because there's camps in the way, there's security gates, there's helicopters flying overhead. When they try to go to their traditional regions, all of the wildlife is being disturbed. And that is a great concern because they were never consulted. There's letters that come out from the Saskatchewan Ministry of the Environment and Resources to 12 stakeholders only. And they consider that they send something out to a Métis local, it's going to get to all the people. They consider that if it goes out to the chairman of a trapper's local, it's going to get to all the people. The problem is, it's not as easy as that, because a lot of them aren't accessible during the period of time. There's a 30-day response time. You've got 30 days from the day it's mailed to respond. And I've seen these permits. They're already approved. Every one of them says that it's going to have low impact on the traditional hunting and gathering rights of the people, but that isn't what the people are seeing. It is having a high impact, and it's going to be worse now because during this past summer, I'm sure you were aware, our entire north was pretty much on fire. Large regions burned through the let it burn policy of the Saskatchewan government. So large areas are burnt right to the ground. There is no foliage, nothing left. Many animals perished, and many more animals had to flood into an area where fires didn't have an impact. I can tell you right now, some people cut down a tree and left it overnight. 
And by morning, the rabbits had stripped it of all green needles. That's how hungry they are. So it's going to be a really hard winter for the animals up here, which means it's going to be a difficult time for the people up here as well, because we still depend on traditional wild food. So it sounds like one of the key things that the group has done over the years has been research. And I'd imagine that a lot of that research was with respect to things that were hard to find or things that were very technical. Tell me about how you approached doing that research. First of all, we got a lot of information and a lot of connections through Dr. Jim Harding. We've read his book, Canada's Deadly Secret. We got in contact with a coalition for a clean green Saskatchewan who had already previously done research on this and given us as much of their materials as possible. We started doing research on the internet, hours and hours and hours and hours of technical reports, those kinds of things. Pembina Institute, scientists from across the world that have been studying this. We've contacted them. They've shared their information. Dr. Gordon Edwards from Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility came and did presentations to us and came up at our request to give presentations in our communities. So those were some of the ways that we started doing research. We've collected a lot of the research material and put it on our website. However, some of it is being scrubbed off the internet, so a lot of those links no longer function. And that is something that people in the anti-nuclear network have noted. Within the provincial government, there's been a change on access to their websites. You have to put in an application to access information, which I find is really ridiculous and disturbing because we pay these people to do this. Why are we having to go through that to get public information? Why is this information not accessible? When we did presentations, interventions at the relicensing hearings of the Key Lake, Rabbit Lake, and MacArthur River Mines, Saskatchewan Environment people were there. A question had been asked by some of our members, this fish and these blueberries that he had in his hand, how do I know that when I'm feeding these to my children, they're not contaminated? And they claim that they do monitoring. And they said that, well, it's available on the website, the Saskatchewan Environment Resources website. Well, most of the Northerners don't even know that those websites exist. So would they think to look there? And there's a lot of Northern people who don't have computers or computer knowledge. So would they think to do that? I'd imagine that in the communities in the region, on the one hand, there must be a recognition of the harms that the uranium industry is causing to people and to the planet, but there must also be a pull towards the jobs and the other economic benefits. Tell me about the ways that the tension between the two of those has shown up in the conversations that you've had in the communities in the last number of years. Tension is the right word because... Everyone does know and acknowledge that it is a really risky business. A lot of people work in the mines knowing that they're going to eventually get sick. They expect it. Families are disrupted because the people that work in the mines have to go up and fly in and stay a week, and they're away from their families half of the time. We used to be a society that shared everything. When somebody got moose meat, it was shared. 
now we are have and have not society. We have a class system. When the mines opened up, we were promised economic prosperity, but we're not getting it. Most of our communities still only have two stores, and we don't even have things like mechanics. We don't have car dealerships. You can't buy clothing in our communities. So all of the money that they're making goes south. The uh, same time, they know they're hurting their mother. They know that digging this stuff out of the ground because they know the stories of their people. And the old ones had told them and warned them that the stuff had to stay under the ground, that it would make people sick, that it would cause great harm. But they've been forced into a corner. They killed our subsistence economy. They filled us up with the idea that it was no good through the residential school systems and that our lifestyles were no good, yet we had no unemployed people. And now they've made us very dependent. You either take the mining jobs or you go on welfare. Even a young person, if they want to apprentice to be an electrician, the setup is you go and do your apprenticeship in the mine. They don't even tell you that there's another option. So it is increasingly tense in our communities. It is divided our communities. There's those of us who are very, very concerned about health aspects. We know that this is not a good economy. It's a boom and bust mining town economy. That's what it is. And when these companies are gone, we'll have nothing. We can't continue to function like that and expect to have a future for our future generations. We've also learned that this is just a way of taking away all of the resources. It's like the whole colonization thing again. This is nuclear colonization. I can imagine the ones who signed the treaties and they got all the trinkets and they look back on it and they see it happening again. But when it was all said and done, it was still a bad deal. Tell me more about the current phase of the organization's work around the existing mines and the exploration. We're still in the education process. That's one of the things that we're doing. So we're still informing people of the hazards, regionally, provincially. Also, I just did a talk in Saskatoon on Sunday. And of the 40 people that were there, I would say four of them knew anything about what's happening in the north. So most people down south don't realize that the uranium mining that they hear a lot about because Cameco and Ariba, mostly Cameco, they both do these big PR campaigns. So all they hear are good things. Yet most communities don't have paved roads, lack of infrastructure, lack of housing, you know, all of those things. So people in the South don't realize that we're being kept poor while these guys are taking the resources and actually taking the money out of the country. We're supporting the Northern Trappers, educating them somewhat on how to respond to the provincial government's processes and helping them with their communications. There is a language barrier when they get these letters. Most of them are Dene-speaking people and they do not understand a lot of the bigger words in the writing or any of the technical stuff. So we help to explain those things and help them to respond, help them to organize what can they do. They want to reestablish their presence on their territories. That's something I think that's really critical because they want the north to be empty. That's what they want. Disharm Lake is not very far from South Patterson Lake where they have discovered a large deposit of high-grade uranium, and they would really like that community to cease to exist. We don't want the north taken over by mines. 
and pretty much just used and abused. By the time these mines are licensed, we'll never have access to that land again. And when it's time to leave and decommission, they will do it to the standard of the day. Well, what we've seen the standard of the day be is a deteriorating environmental disaster. So we don't trust that. We'll be left with the environmental mess. We'll be left to bear the impacts. And there is no way they can do that fairly by just giving us money. I think another thing that people didn't understand from what I learned the other day is that these companies, they have an unlimited budget to spend on promoting their industry. We have volunteers. We're selling artwork to support what we do, to be able to travel, to be able to maintain our communication systems. And we need more. We need more bodies with skills. That's what we need as well. It's not an easy thing standing up. One of the other things we're doing, though, is also proactive in terms of we want to really promote sustainable local economies. And we need a lot more support with that. Another thing we're doing, working on our own anecdotal health study. We're just getting to the point where we can do that, and we're getting ready to start monitoring whether or not there is radioactive contamination already that we're dealing with, because we don't get told when there is. So we want to make sure that there is more transparency for sure. We need the public to be standing up a hell of a lot more solidly with us. There needs to be a demand to shut down these aging nuclear reactors in Canada. There needs to be a demand that if they want to store nuclear waste, they have to shut those down and quit creating it. And they need to quit seeing this jobs as the only benefits. There's other places and other ways we can work. There's other ways we can run economies. And we need help to start doing that, all of us together. And when it comes to this issue and this struggle, what gives you hope? More and more people are starting to realize through this education that we've been doing that they have to start standing up. They can't wait for somebody else to come along and do it. And more and more people are becoming more aware of the real hazards and risks that we're being made to face. And that we need to start taking we need to start taking responsibility for our own economic development so that it becomes something that we can live with within our value system. You have been listening to my interview with Candace Paul of the Committee for Future Generations, which is organizing against the uranium industry in northern Saskatchewan. To learn more about their work, go to committeeforfuturegenerations.wordpress.com. That's all one word, committeeforfuturegenerations.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.